Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Tom Chaney and this is Living Health Live. My co-host for the show and in our practice is my wife, Dr. Stephanie Chaney. Thanks for joining us. Each week, Dr. Steph and I will provide information and instructions on how to live a healthier life, free of chronic diseases like diabetes, neuropathy, autoimmunity, pain, and arthritis. To help you learn and grow, this is your place to get valuable information about your health challenges. Also, you can check out our website at mylivinghealth.com. Call our office for an appointment at 410-216-9180. Today, uh, we have a special guest joining us. This is Dr. Regina Drews. She is a nationally recognized expert in cardiology with a focus on prevention and cardiac imaging. She has a long-standing interest in integrative and functional medicine and has developed Fit in Your Genes program that utilizes genomic and met- metabolic approaches to personalized lifestyle intervention for patients with cardiac disease and risk factors. Dr. Drews is a healthcare innovator working to bring modern technology to serve patients and practitioners. She is currently combining her interests in integrative medicine and technology and creating a telemedicine platform for holistic heart health. Currently, Dr. Drews is serving as chief of cardiology in a community hospital in Far Rockaway, New York, and she has held many leadership positions in cardiology. Dr. Regina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tom, and uh, thank you so much for having me. Dr. Regina, um, so you're sort of like an elusive unicorn in the conventional medical system as far as being an integrative, holistic cardiologist. How How did your career evolve to result in you practicing cardiology the way that you do today? You know, first of all, thank you for calling me a unicorn. You know, this is a favorite Silicon Valley term. You know, they're always uh, looking for unicorns. I guess I'm uh, part of the group of uh, forward-looking cardiologists, and actually their numbers are growing quite substantially, who are focusing or rather refocusing themselves on lifestyle um, interventions as key to stemming our epidemic of uh, cardiovascular disease. Um, there are specific points perhaps in my career as somebody who was uh, primarily hospital-based and uh, well-known in uh, my field, which is a field of cardiac imaging. Over time, I was struck by the fact that we seem to have been doing so many procedures and doing them very well, saving a lot of people's lives and improving their quality of life. But yet there appeared to be a limit, almost a ceiling, if you will. And somehow this incremental procedural gain outside of a very acute situation didn't really result in a lot of our patients feeling better or feeling well. And uh, it became apparent to me by interacting with my patients that there was a group of them that actually seemed to discover a way to feel better and they maintained their vitality and that their focus on life was very much different from another set of patients that uh, certainly weren't doing as well. And objectively, they seem to have had similar type of illness, if you will, and similar burden of procedures and and medication. So what was really that difference that was setting these groups apart? Uh, And it turned out the answer was fairly obvious. 
it was in plain sight. The group of patients who, despite heart disease, had enjoyed wellness um, while living with it were patients who maintained loving relationships. They had a purpose in their life. They were engaged with their community. They were uh, mindful of their nutrition. They remained active, whether it was gardening or some type of a light exercise. And that was a critical variable that set those patients apart. And I think one day it sort of coalesced for me. I was walking in a hospital hallway and kind of running to assume my duties uh, in my section. And I saw this very elderly patient on a stretcher just being wheeled into our procedural suite. And uh, this patient appeared to have no interaction with the outside environment. And yet here she was just being wheeled in to yet another procedure. And I said to myself, well, I certainly personally don't want to be like that in my advanced age. I don't want any of my family or friends to be like that. There has to be a way to change this. And that's how it got uh, started for me. So what would you say for our listeners, um, for you having seen conventional cardiology and integrative cardiology kind of have um, a perspective of both. Um, what would you say, how would you describe the two to our listeners? So the differences, there are quite a few differences and also quite a few similarities between, uh, I guess, conventional and integrative approach. And I think I want listeners to realize is that there is a lot of opportunity within the conventional cardiology to implement lifestyle modification and a more holistic way of treating patients. And I think as time progresses, we will see some amount of convergence uh, between perhaps the current practice and more integrative or holistically oriented approach. The whole concept of lifestyle modification is actually not new in cardiology. We had multiple precedences in terms of plant-based diet with Dr. Esselstyn's and Dr. Ornish. We had work by Dr. Atkins and later on by Dr. Agatson. So there really isn't necessarily a super new concept that lifestyle modification could be powerful um, uh, measure to offset vascular disease. Unfortunately, the current environment really positioned conventional cardiologists to focus mostly on medications and procedures, which works well for uh, diseased patients, especially in an acute setting, but just doesn't work well enough. So it's an approach that falls short and basically doesn't really address underlying reasons as to why these patients are suffering from heart disease, whether it's cardiovascular disease or structural disease. The integrative approach is different because instead of focusing on a disease and what we're going to do to treat disease, we're focusing on a person. And it is that whole person focus that actually holds the key to both reversal and stabilization. Uh, and it's very powerful. Of course, the problem with the integrative approach is that it's not as easily quantifiable. It's in many ways uh, difficult to standardize because it's highly personalized. So the execution of this in the current medical environment where we're still remunerated by insurance companies per unit of work, whether it's a procedure or a specific visit, is difficult. It explains why many 
integrative practitioners are are running cash-based practices now because then they're not sort of bound by that standard that doesn't work in an individualized setting. That is true. Uh, so there are the practice models, and that's, you know, a great point, uh, implementation. Everyone loves, at least in principle, the integrative concept. Uh, who wouldn't want to come into a doctor's office and get looked at as an entire person as opposed to a disease in some of its parts? But the problem is the fact that our current medical system, the way that it's structured, does not have an opening for the integrative approach. It has some, but it's really uh, an extension kind of of a, I guess, a practitioner's will to incorporate this style of practice. Personally, my practice is a hybrid practice. I provide traditional cardiac care, but with a twist, uh, patients who do see me in a traditional environment using their insurance, for example, get some initial uh, nutritional lifestyle advice, uh, and if they wish to personalize their treatment further, then they progress into um, extended visits, our fee-for-service structure visits. I guess you can call them concierge. I typically try to avoid this word because I don't want patients to think that it's not accessible to them and they must have some type of incredible discretionary income to be able to get this, it's absolutely not true, and we've been able to work with patients from uh, various uh, social strata and various paying abilities to actually get them to goal. Uh, And I think that approach, perhaps a hybrid practice approach for many practitioners, provides an opportunity because in cardiovascular land, we do have extensive testing procedures, and uh, patients might benefit from having some commercial insurance coverage to actually use it for those purposes. So last week, um, we were talking, uh, Dr. Tom and I, on our on our previous show about um, some of the, the major risk factors as far as cardiovascular disease. And for me in practice, clinically, what, what I feel underlying a lot of the risk factors like high cholesterol, high blood pressure, obesity, things like that, underlying all of that, I almost think the biggest risk factor is elevated sugars. Um, what would you say you find clinically would be your sort of primary cause of cardiovascular disease, even though in an integrated setting we're looking at so many factors, but what would you say is your top? So great question, Stephanie. I would say definitely agree with you on the sugar, but sugar is one piece of a bigger puzzle, if you will. I find that almost 100% of the time, Uh, the unifying concept in development of vascular disease and even structural heart disease, the type of heart diseases that do not involve the vascular itself but involve the heart muscle or even the electrical system of the heart. The unifying concept is inflammation and it is present 100% of the time in every single patient that we see. The key is in finding it. Now, what is promoting the inflammation in the given individual? And that's where sugar comes in big time because it's a tremendous metabolic 
adversary, if you will, that is highly inflammatory in nature. The even early insulin resistance results in highly undesirable changes that are essentially uh, promoting inflammatory response on a vascular level and even on a systemic level and, of course, hormonally. So identification of inflammation for me is a key component. Um, and then I usually try to break it down for a patient and we focus on uh, six areas that are typically involved. It, metabolic is usually number one, that's insulin resistance, diabetes, prediabetes, or impaired glucose tolerance, regardless of where the patient falls. We certainly focus on some hereditary predispositions and uh, in our Fit in Your Genes program, it's actually not a focus specifically on the genetics that somehow is associated with certain disease entities, but actually a focus on metabolic parameters, things that are involved in methylation, for example, detox, and other cellular reactions that are likely to tilt an individual either toward or away from an inflammatory response. We focus on hormonal stabilization, uh, extremely critical because uh, majority of patients that we see are experiencing some type of ongoing stress, uh, whether chronically or acutely. They very often have uh, what's commonly called uh, adrenal fatigue, but more appropriately called uh, HPA access dysregulation. You're listening Living Health Live with me, Dr. Tom and Dr. Steph Cheney. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors, Cyrex Labs and Professional Co-op. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Regina Drews, who is an integrative cardiologist. And we were just talking about, and we were getting to, into the primary causes of cardiovascular diseases, and we were talking about these six different areas. So uh, why don't we pick up where we left off? Very good, Tom, Stephanie. Thank you. So we were discussing kind of six facets that, based on my experiences, were made into the Foundation Fit New Genes program and allow me to understand what are the specific drivers of uh, inflammation as well as uh, things such as oxidative stress and autoimmunity that are promoting these patients' uh, heart disease. Um, and that actually applicable not just to vascular heart disease, uh, typically referred to as coronary artery disease, but also to structural heart diseases such as, for example, congestive heart failure or weakness of the heart muscle, as well as electrical diseases, uh, one of the very most common ones being atrial fibrillation. So metabolically, I agree with Stephanie 100%, insulin resistance, impaired glucose tolerance, sugar plays tremendous role in initiation of inflammation that affects all of the uh, heart disease entities. Of course, the hereditary component, predisposition to vascular diseases, as well as uh, metabolic and detox properties that are inherent to this particular individual, for example. Hormonal balance is a third category looking at uh, of stress resilience and stress regulation, as well as uh, reproductive hormones and how to regulate those to align an individual in a more balanced uh, state. Uh, we look extensively as well at the immune, inflammatory, and infectious facets. So I usually call it three I's because they all start with an I. 
as it is well known that in patients with uh, clinical problems with immunity, we see uh, excessive rates of coronary vascular disease. For example, patients with inflammatory bowel diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, very often have accelerated atherosclerosis. We also see this in patients with chronic infections. for a good example of this or a model of this are patients with HIV infection where both the infection itself and the medications actually contributing to uh, atherosclerosis. And so that would be our facet number four. Um, in number five category, we look at toxic exposures. And uh, toxic exposures are gaining uh, a lot of recognition in cardiology right now. We're involved at my site with uh, a trial called uh, TACT-2, which is uh, National Institutes of Health-sponsored investigation. TACT stands for Trial to Assess Chelation Therapy. Two means that this is a second trial, a so-called pragmatic trial with an intention to um, derive an FDA approval for intravenous chelation with EDTA for patients who are 50 or older have a history of diabetes and have a documented evidence of myocardial infarction. So stay tuned on this because I think that is likely to change how we practice cardiology and really open an opportunity for integrative and uh, holistic uh, practice. And finally, uh, our sixth facet is something that I call, you know, big S, which usually stands for sleep and stress. Um, As you know, these are also tied in, obviously, to metabolic, hormonal, toxic, and hereditary influences, but Yet, so many patients are completely unaware that they have uh, sleep disruptions. They're often uh, struggling with obstructive sleep apnea, and it goes undiagnosed, and it's a tremendous driver of inflammation, weight loss resistance, blood pressure elevations, and, of course, stress, the ability to manage stress and the ability to be resilient in the face of stress is a tremendously powerful quality. And if you think about it, uh, the uh, places where we see a lot of, for example, uh, centenarians such as blue zones, those pockets where people appear to have very remarkable longevity and remarkable quality of life are all the type of places where the population has an ability to be resilient in the face of external stressors. And it comes through community, it comes through the sense of purpose, it comes from an individual's internal resolve, sort of a mindset, not to really be inflamed, I guess, by the outside uh, influences. And, And it's a tough one to clue the patients in, but it's amazing how well they respond. Uh, I often do a very brief, you know, quick heart coherence technique with my patients right then and there in the office, and uh, I have to tell you, the results are remarkable. Kind of connecting the spiritual and, and mental and psychosocial and emotional component as far as overall holistic health. Um, those are all really, really great points, and you know, um, with with what Dr. Tom and I do in the office, we work with a lot of diabetics and helping them reverse their diabetes. And when we are 
we're actually hitting all of these points that you were talking about today with our patients as far as the six major uh, risk factors and categories to, to look at and to handle and address. And one of the patterns that we've seen over the last 15 years is we, you know, cholesterol will come down very, very often when we're working a patient's sugars down, when we're addressing those 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 facets. And we have gotten patients' total cholesterol as down as low as, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And we're, we're very quick when the cholesterol comes down on the lifestyle changes, if they're on a statin medication, to send them back to their prescribing doctor to address that. And we get a lot of pushback and resistance as far as medical doctors being comfortable taking people off of or reducing statins. But, you know, I have seen clinically and I have read that cholesterol can be too low. What are your thoughts on, on cholesterol being too low? So, uh, fascinating topic as well, because, you know, cardiology sort of had uh, a big turnaround on cholesterol recently, and uh, there was a lot of interesting discourse also about saturated fats and how potentially the uh, earlier findings that it was actually sugar, which is more deleterious to heart health, were probably suppressed by the uh, special interest early on. Um, uh, my clinical experience parallels yours entirely. I do see patients drop their cholesterol numbers and actually change their cholesterol distribution because there's more to cholesterol than just the number. As their inflammatory markers come down, their insulin resistance improves, they lose weight, and they become more metabolically aligned, if you will. Cholesterol, in my mind, and that's really coming from my functional medicine training where we don't really look at causes uh, and we recognize risk factors, but we called the modifiable lifestyle factors, that the great, I think, philosophy of the functional medicine is to look at the antecedents, triggers, and mediators, and uh, a so-called ATM model. And cholesterol sits well into the ATM model because we recognize that if a person has a certain predisposition, and that's the antecedent, and then there is an event or set of circumstances, and those are triggers, well, these changes are actually are perpetuated by mediators. And so cholesterol is one of those mediators. It's body's band-aid. It is the SOS signal that our body sends out there to say, hey, something is really wrong. There is uh, excessive need for cellular repair. So let me send the band-aid so that I can plug whatever holes exist. So when we do see patients in clinical practice, just as you mentioned, who have metabolic dysregulation, who are inflamed, very commonly they would present with elevated cholesterol and specifically elevated bad cholesterol uh, and, of course, you know, we often see uh, oxidized LDL or small dense LDL and reshuffling of LDL into smaller and smaller particles that are highly allergenic and could just bury themselves into the vascular lining. So, of course, reducing uh, cholesterol at that point when an individual is highly inflamed is beneficial because you are, in a way, curbing the mediator that is initiating the vascular changes, but you're not really addressing the root cause. If this person's root cause was due to metabolic, hereditary, hormonal, toxic, and other factors that we've discussed, then the next stage has to go into addressing the root causes. Now, I do use statin medications. Uh, statin medications have 
a proven track record in patients who are at high vascular risk or patients who had vascular events, especially for patients who had stents and bypass surgeries. So my patient population, I guess, is is different because of uh, myself being a cardiologist. Do I think that there is danger in getting cholesterol too low? I do think that we need to be careful. There is a recent uh, class of medications called PCASK9 inhibitors that is actually one of the first genetic therapies for cholesterol reduction. Interestingly enough, the major trial that was reported in uh, March at the American College of Cardiology showed use of these medications in very high-risk patients, but despite tremendous cholesterol reductions, these patients did not have a very sizable event reduction. They had some. They had about 23% event rate reduction, but uh, there were expectations that such a great drop in cholesterol, including getting LDL cholesterol into the teens for majority of individuals, would result in much higher event reduction, and it didn't happen. So a lot of uh, voices obviously said, well, perhaps we are at the end of the cholesterol hypothesis and lower is better has a floor Uh, and so beyond that floor there is no further event reduction. Now in the trial the incidence of other events, neurological events for example was fairly low. Subsequent trials or analysis showed that there was no neurological impairment. However I can tell you that there is strong data that shows that in patients for example treated with statin drugs because of the mechanism of the statin drugs there is overall reduction in the exercise tolerance because of the muscle fatigue and I have met many patients who even at modest doses of statin medications are suffering from brain fog and fatigue that makes it impossible for them to be employed. So um, too low? Is it dangerous? Perhaps. I think we are trying to push the patient into the lowest possible range thinking that that will be better for a high-risk patient, in my mind, is a disservice. Uh, I think one must address the underlying root causes of vascular Mm -hmm. disease in that individual and not exercise a pharmacological crutch to make it optically plausible that they should be better now because their numbers are lower. So a little bit of a long-winded answer too, but you know it's a complicated question yeah, as well. Yeah, it's very complex because the chronic uh, ongoing diseases related potentially to statin use include um, you know, congestive heart failure because of the impact on the heart muscle itself of the statins. What's your what's your comfortable low or your baseline for total on a statin? So again, it depends on a patient. Like I said, if a patient has documented evidence of coronary vascular disease, prior myocardial infarction, stent or stents, coronary artery bypass surgery, I typically get. Uh, Comfortable if their LDL cholesterol is a direct measured cholesterol is somewhere between 
60 to 70. Uh, if they're involved in lifestyle effort um, and they're working on uh, getting their uh, parameters all aligned, there is no necessarily a need to escalate cholesterol medication. They will get there. However, for that patient, I will favor a small dose of a statin drug, even if their uh, cholesterol numbers, let's say LDL particles and such, are all well in the optimal range. We are, believe it or not, we're at the end of the segment. We uh, Time has really flown by here. Uh, I think we could keep you on all morning. And I think we've given our listeners some very valuable information and we've really enjoyed this time. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Regina Drew. She's a nationally recognized expert in cardiology with a focus on prevention and cardiac imaging. She has a long-standing interest in integrative and functional medicine and it has developed fit in your genes program that utilizes genomic and metabolic approaches to personalize lifestyle intervention for patients with cardiac disease and risk factors. You've been listening to Living Health Live with me, Dr. Tom Cheney and Dr. Stephanie Cheney of Living Health Integrative Medicine in Annapolis. Make sure to tune in next Thursday at 1230 to learn how to use nutrients to avoid heart disease.